Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the Evergreen Awards Author Chats. Tonight we'll be speaking with Michelle Good, author of Five Little Indians. This will be our last chat of the series, so if you haven't been able to participate so far, we encourage you to check out our earlier podcasts of all the other authors that we've had the opportunity to speak to, and we hope you enjoy. You're muted, Linda. <laughs> Thank you so much. We, you know, how many times in our lives prior to COVID, we never once said you're muted, right? <laughs> now we've probably all said it about 7,000 times, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. well, I, was, I, I was trying not to interrupt your conversation, but are, are you not from Saskatchewan or your, your community is in Saskatchewan? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the red pheasant. Red pheasant, that's right. Yes, yeah. And um, yeah, and you know, the main character in this novel I'm working on right now, I don't like being all big like that. Let's go <laughs> there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, like looking at yourself, right? So uh, oh, it's awful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, my, um, my great grandmother is sort of the, uh, loosely fictionalized main character in this novel I'm working on. So um, yeah, it should be interesting to see how it all pans out. Now, um, Michelle, this, was this the great grandmother who is who inspired Lily in Five Little Indians? That was, my, that was my mother. That was your mother, okay. And Lily was a real person. Yes, Lily was yeah. my mother's friend, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah. Uh, when you spoke of climate change, when I first when I was first came on, you were talking to Sarah about climate change. Mm. I I heard you speak when Wob Rice interviewed you, and mm. um, of course I really admire him. He was the CBC person in our area for a long time. But you, one of the things you said was that <clears throat> humans are the only people that or the only that the, creatures that the world creatures. doesn't need. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, everything I, else has its place and we've just, you know, created this mess, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I, I've told that to so many people and they, it was, <laughs> it's a profound statement that I don't think people ever think about. Yeah. At least I haven't. Yeah. I know that if certainly uh, we, we have not lived close to nature as your community has. And so, but, you know, I, I, feel like I was somewhat aware, but it's such a simple but profound way of saying that we have created all of the problems and we contribute nothing to except we take from it. That's and right. um, uh, I just wanted to thank you for that because I've been able to talk to my grandkids about it. And, and so many people have just had an aha moment. So beyond <laughs> your book, I have listened to you being interviewed several times and um, I just have really enjoyed it. I want to tell you that before we start, because it was, it's just, I feel like I'm learning well, so much. Great. I'm glad to hear it. You know, if you can offer something to the world, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, yeah. So how have you been spending your summer then? If you, are you hiding inside writing? Face off. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, just, this week I've been teaching the, uh, uh, Banff School of Fine Arts Intensive for Emerging Writers, and uh, and I'm going to be teaching virtually, thank goodness, at UBC Creative Writing School this fall, 
and somehow I'm going to write this book too, but mainly I've been just doing events, 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 events. Um, you should see my June calendar. That's when all the, um, the uh, nominations, those three nominations that came in on one day and it was like, what is going on here, right? And, uh, yeah. uh, and uh, June, so June is just cra was crazy. There's not one day in that calendar that there wasn't an event and sometimes three. Um, oh yeah, so June, and I just got back from Newfoundland. I went to the, to the Woody Point Literary uh, Festival there and then the Lanya, I always want to say it, it's Lanya Banya, but I always want to say Lanya Banya for some reason, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so, and you know, travel to Newfoundland is seven hours in the air, never mind the time in airports and you know so on and so forth so I'm still a little bit recuperating from that it was a long haul so yeah but yeah and then you know I wrote an essay for CBC and an essay for the Globe and yeah I've just been it's been a very busy summer yes well why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of um your writing uh, we're a little bit familiar with but also you have this really interesting background before you sort of started writing full-time as well well, yeah, I, um, I, worked, I started working as an activist, really, with Indigenous organizations when I was 18, and, uh, um, and basically did that until I was, how old was I when I went to law school? Well, 38, because I went back to university to get some current credits. <gasps> did someone try to join us? <laughs> <laughs> to do some uh, current credits before I applied to law school. So I was 40 um, when I started law school. And then I practiced, that was in 1996. And then I practiced until 2014. And most of that was representing survivors and uh, during the um, settlement process, well in litigation, first of all, before those settlement processes existed. Um, and then um, I worked with uh, some other firms and then I set up my own little firm. And then I did the MFA while I was still, <laughs> um, while I was uh, uh, still managing the law firm. And so that was, that was a challenging time, but I, I had to write the book and I figured with all of your obligations, when you're representing people, I won't make the time to write. So if I'm obligated to student colleagues, then I will write. And so, um, and so that's my thesis was the first draft of Five Little Indians, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Do you remember the moment when you decided that you wanted to shift careers and start writing instead? No. No, because it wasn't like that. I wasn't thinking of it in, in, in terms of a career. I was thinking of it in terms of, I need to write this book because people don't get it. They do not understand why, um, why our people continue to suffer and, you know, we see that suffering through, you know, all the negative statistics, the over-incarceration, the issues with addictions, the, you know, the problems in maintaining parenting and other types of relationships and so on. And they just, they just revert to racism because it's kind of the easiest thing to do. And, you know, for a period of time, I worked with um, the Department of Justice and, uh, that was, I was invited to work with them um, to help them develop an alternative dispute resolution process uh, related to resolving residential school cases. And 
I remember my manager saying to me, you're not objective. And I said, are you? <laughs> like, I mean, first of all, object objectivity is a myth. There is no such thing as objectivity. And secondly, we had a young uh, woman lawyer that was working in our unit there who was devoutly Catholic. And uh, her point of view was that it was all nonsense, that these people weren't harmed. Um, and, you know, that it was just a cash grab or whatever. And so, you know, I asked her, I said, so, you know, are, are we just an inferior people then? You know, like, how do you explain? How do you explain the suffering? Um, and, you know, are we just an inferior people? She didn't answer. So in her silence, I got her answer. But did anybody ask her if she was objective? Of course not, because she was, a, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Catholic a wask as opposed to a wasp <laughs> so yeah so that was a that was an interesting experience for sure but but yeah so I wasn't thinking okay now I've done this career and now I'm going to go into the it wasn't even about anything like that it was about writing this book and trying to answer that stupid horrible question why can't they just get over it and um, you know, and now it's turned into a career, which is great because I love writing, but I, you know, it wasn't, it, that's not why I started. That's not why I wrote the book. So, yeah. I've noticed how much I say, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait until I do the transcript, then it becomes obvious what all of our issues is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. Could you speak to a little bit more on the topic of the like the second generation of people who went to uh, residential schools, I feel like that's a disconnect for a lot of people is why are the people who didn't actually attend the residential schools still so impacted by what happened there? Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, one of the things I say about that, and I, I you know, doing all these interviews and such, it's really helped me to sort of think about what are the best ways to explain these things that, um, that anybody can understand, like you were saying, Linda, about you know, uh, that comment about, you know, we're the only creatures that contribute nothing to the world, right? So trying to find ways. And, and what I've been doing is I've been comparing trauma to radioactivity, right? That, that trauma has a half-life that continues and continues and continues. And, you know, when you think about the kind of traumas that these um, survivors experienced, um, you know, how do you, how do you become an effective parent if you've been raised by an institution? Okay, and not only have you been raised by an institution, okay, but you have learned, uh, your children, and we all know children learn primarily through an observational relationship, if you will. You watch, you observe, you take example. And so what second generation, third generation, fourth generation children, well, let's speak first about second generation children, what they're doing and when they're observing their res school survivor parents is they're, they're seeing trauma responses to the world, right? So they're seeing, you know, if something happens and it triggers their parent, they're seeing, they're seeing them overwhelmed with fear. They're seeing them overwhelmed with anxiety, having panic attacks or reverting to rage or, you know, any of those kinds of things. And those are the things that that's how they're learning to respond to the world is through, you know, observing how their parents 
respond to the world and their parents respond to the world as victims of deep, deep, deep trauma. And I really believe, and I, well, I don't believe it, I know it, that even if those children, you know, of the survivors, the, the people who actually went to res school um, were not physically or sexually abused, from the moment they were taken, the moment they were taken from their parents, they were traumatized. And that, I mean, who do we look to when we're frightened uh, or we need protection? We look to our parents. And then the priest and the RCMP show up at the door and take you and tell your parents. You get to see that your parents are powerless, that they can't help you. And so you're six years old and you've come to understand that you're alone in the world, unprotected. And so how, how could you not be traumatized just from that experience, even without all of the abuses that, um, well, not only the abuses, but the terrible health conditions that existed there. You know, my, my mother contracted TB um, at residential school and ended up spending three years in a TB sanatorium. And, you know, there were, and I mean, you know, you hear about, people's responses to the discovery of the graves, right? Of the grave sites and oh, everybody's shocked. It's like, oh. it's very frustrating to me because in 1907, uh, Dr. Peter Bryce um, was uh, instructed to do, he was the chief medical officer for the Department of Indian Affairs and he was directed to do a survey of the conditions at residential schools, largely because parents were complaining about it. And he came back and he told Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the, you know, one of the key engineers or, you know, person who maintained the system after the earliest years. Um, he told him, he said, if we were trying to create a mechanism for the effective transfer of tuberculosis, we've done it with the residential schools. You know, their cots were like this far apart, just enough so that they could, you know, slip their little legs over when they're getting up in the morning. And uh, so they fired him, <laughs> right? you know, every, you know, rather than taking it seriously and, uh, um, you know, trying to do something about it, they just fired the squeaky wheel. And um, um, he then wrote uh, this letter to the Ottawa citizen and I love that letter. I mean, he's, he, he says in there, and it really brings a certain point home. He says in there, it's shameful the way we're treating our allies. And that was early enough in Canadian history for people to remember that there would have been no Canada without the Indigenous allies, right? Um, and that the Indigenous allies played a tremendous role in you know, winning the various wars for the placement of the borders and so on. Um, but then, and that's why there's this wonderful book, if anybody ever wants to read, you know, probably the best history of residential schools, there is a book called The National Crime um, by, I forget his name, Malloy and uh, John, John S. Malloy, who wrote me an email and I was just like, wow, <laughs> about my book. And he said that, uh, he said that for all the research he did for that, he never got a real heart feeling about what those people experienced until he read my book. And I just thought, oh my God, my life is fulfilled. <laughs> right? uh -huh. um, yeah, so, but that's what he called, that's what he said in that letter, Dr. Bryce said, is that it's a national crime, what we're doing to these children. And 
Duncan Campbell Scott's response to that was, while it's true, I used to be able to quote this verbatim, but I sort of can't anymore. Um, he said, while it's true that the children die at a much higher rate in the schools than they do in their villages, that in itself is not enough. It's not adequate reason for us to, um, to, uh, to sway from our plan, which is to, uh, you know, we, there will be one day when there is not a single Indian that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there will be no Indian problem and no Indian department. And so it was okay. It was just okay if these kids died because, you know, they had a plan. And, um, and Duncan Campbell Scott also wrote a, an essay <laughs> saying that so many kids didn't get the benefit of the, of the residential schools, whatever that was supposed to be, um, because they died and, in, and acknowledged. And these are all records that are available. Acknowledged that in some schools up to 50% of the children died. Wow. Yeah. So now what was the question I was answering? <laughs> you got How that sort of keeps trickling through to oh, yeah. other generations. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and yeah, I mean, how can you, I mean, and you think about the siblings of those kids that died and, you know, how they never, you know, maybe some of the siblings come home and some of them don't. And imagine the trauma just of, of that alone. And I like to, to try to separate out, you know, like the trauma from sexual and physical abuse, you know, I mean, sexual and physical abuse was rampant, let's be clear about that. But I try to separate it out so that people can understand that just the whole endeavor was traumatic and, and that, the, you know, it trickles down, like, like I say, like a half-life, um, that trauma has a half-life, it just continues. So yeah, that's what I think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when people are reading your work, especially this book, how do you hope that it's perceived? Like, what do you hope people get out of it? What's the goal? What they're getting out of it. Yes. <laughs> I look at, you know, I look at reader reviews and, and lots of readers track me down and send me emails and, and, um, and it's just really, really satisfying when I hear people say, I just didn't know, but I'll never forget. And, you know, and I hear people, um, you know, laying out their plans to take responsibility for their own education and to read more and to learn more and to participate more in, um, you know, reconciliation. I, I question the whole reconciliation business, but, you know, wanting to participate more positively in terms of relationships between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people. And that's, you know, I wanted to answer that question. And I hear people posing that question themselves, like saying things like, if you ever hear somebody say, why can't they just get over it? Tell them to read Five Little Indians, right? And that just, I mean, it does my heart such good that, that it's reaching people and, uh, and that it, it, like I say, that it's inspiring them to understand more and learn more. Yeah, yeah. I never expected this book to, um, have the impact that it's had. Like I, I really thought that it would be a niche book um, that would, um, you know, be, you know, would reach a niche audience. I never expected this, but I get, 
I mean, I get emails from survivors, from indigenous people, you know, intergenerational survivors, from judges, from historians, from, you know, every, every strata of society I've had responses um, about this book. And it's, uh, I just, I'm so, so pleased, right? Because it's, you know, I think it's a good legacy to have. I said something that reached people. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. is kind of the goal with writing, I would think. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, what's usually your goal then? No, for my, for oh, me, good. For writing, <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, I mean, I read a lot of books about nothing, you know, like I read, I, I read books sometimes that people, um, are just raving about, right? And are, you know, winning big prizes and so on and so forth. All right, so what was the point here? <laughs> and I mean, and it's okay. I mean, but some books are just art for the sake of art. They're not, uh, they're not written with an intent to sort of uh, educate or create a dialogue or, you know, anything like that. They're just, you know, they're just, they're art, you know, and that's, that's fine, you know, it's just different from the way I approach writing. And uh, um, yeah, so. Is there an honor that you've received so far that means the most to you? Um, they were all a shock to me. <laughs> just like that day when the three nominations came in, I was just like, I really was. And I, I live alone. I, I live in a, you know, a bubble of one with my two muds. And uh, um, <laughs> I won the Governor General's award. You got a cookie? <laughs> so, so, you know, like with, you know, if it hadn't been the pandemic, there would have been in-person events and, you know, we would have been out celebrating with friends and so on and so forth. But it still feels surreal to me. Um, the largest, the biggest honor is when survivors and their children and their parents respond to me. That's the biggest honor because I feel that I got it right. And, you know, this is a book that you don't wanna miss on. You know, you don't wanna take this subject and not hit the mark. And so when I hear from survivors that they can, you know, that they see themselves in it, it just, I think there, that's the biggest honor really. You mm -hmm. know, it really is. Uh, while I was reading it, I was sort of following all the different storylines and trying to predict where they were going to go. Did you have a plan when you started about how you were going to tie everybody together or did it just happen? No, <laughs> no I, I, I'm not one of those writers that, you know, has sticky notes all over everything and, you know, has a, I did write an outline, but the only reason I wrote an outline was because it was a an exercise that was required in the MFA in my novel course, so I wrote an outline, right? But um, what I did was um, I wrote the first paragraph and the first paragraph was about Kenny. And right away I knew that I was gonna need more characters um, if I was gonna fully explore the scope of that experience. So what I did was I just created um five characters and i um you know i've read hundreds and hundreds of psychological assessments like just hundreds and so i attributed certain types of abuse to each character and then i i speculated in terms of you know what are the issues that person is going to experience what are the challenges they're going to face 
um, you know, is this PTSD? Is this, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder? And I gave them, I gave them their trauma and I gave them their harms, if you will, and then just wrote them in from there, right? And I didn't even know at that point, um, you know, how they would relate to each other, what their relationships would be with each other. That just grew as I was writing. That, oh, she needs a friend. Okay. <laughs> you know, and off and off you go, right? So, but yeah, I, they, but those characters really came to life really quickly. Uh, they became really fully formed humans um, very quickly in the process. And I've, in some ways, I felt like they really helped me write it, you know, that, uh, you know, the way that I had imagined them and gave them, breathed life into them, um, that they were here hanging around, telling me what to do, especially Clara, <laughs> <laughs> bossy Clara. Right? So, yeah, but anyway. Linda, I feel like I'm monopolizing all the time. <laughs> do you have any questions you wanted to ask Michelle? Oh, I've been enjoying, I've been enjoying the conversation. I do, I do have a, I do have a, lots of questions, but some of it's more like a comment. So what I, what I, at the end of the book, I had this strong sense of community that these, these individuals experienced different things, but at different levels, but it was, it was, it was of course sad and horrible, the, the story but also this strong resilience and strength of the community that they gave each other. So that I wanted to comment on that because you really, that is something that you really uh, were able to write a book that showed there is a strength and resiliency and a, an ex, a community um, acceptance that is, that ha, is, uh, has, is wonderful and, and admirable. Um, but yeah, so the one question that I, or was that, I, I, I want to make sure I get the characters correct. So sorry, for, for instance, like you were able to show that when Kenny shared his story to the, um, to the, uh, the lawyer, when he had, yeah, he, yeah. It, it was hit, um, for him, it was, uh, it ended in a bad result for him sharing that story. However, when Howie, I think I've got it right, when he shared his story, it was like he was able to put it behind him and move on. Yeah. And I, I thought that was brilliant the way that you, there isn't one way of going forward with when you have such trauma um, to, um, it, because sometimes people think, you know, there's, this is a situation and I know somebody who had the same situation and they were able to move on and have a, you know, move on from it. And another person couldn't. So it's sort of this one person is, is judged better than the other. But you were well, able to write in that book how that is, it isn't the same for everybody. It's not the same and for anybody. You for know, anybody, yeah. We all have different psychological makeups and different strengths and different weaknesses. And, you know, and... And one of the things that I, I thought, I hoped would come across in the book is that how he escaped when he was just a little kid, right? And he went down to the States and he had a great father figure. His mother was wonderful. So he had, he had all sorts of things that Kenny didn't have. 
And, you know, Kenny went home and it just didn't work. And, you know, and he was basically from the time he was 13 years old on his own without anybody really, um, and just couldn't stop running, which is a real symptom of PTSD. And uh, yeah, and I, I also really wanted to show that, that a lot of these kids gravitated to the city for the reasons we see with Maisie and Kenny's story that they just don't fit at home anymore. Um, uh, or else, you know, there was no home anymore or they couldn't get home or, you know, all kinds of reasons. So they would gravitate to the city and they would create their own community because who else could they relate to, you know, other than other people who had had the same life. When you were talking about Dr. Bryce, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know the name, Cindy Blackstock. She, mm -hmm. um, she often has, she goes to his grave and she honors him. I love that Cindy does that. And if I was closer, I would do the same thing. You know, he, he really risked a lot in doing that, in doing what he did. And um, so, yeah, he was a pretty special human for sure. I think that is just the history of minimizing. And, you know, in that case, they fired him and discredited him for, for bringing forward the reality of it. And uh, I think, you know, people who are shocked that about, that, that, that say that they're shocked about it, it's because it's been, it's been um, swept under the carpet for so long. And I don't know that I think that it's been swept under the carpet. I think that there has been a culture of acceptance that it was okay. And, you know, and also the, the myth of the intent of the residential schools that, that there was something good about this intent. And of course there wasn't, I mean, and, you know, for many years I thought, you know, that this was about assimilation. I don't anymore, it was about genocide. And, you know, if it was about assimilation, where was the education? Where was the support for these kids when they came out of the school? Where was anything? There was nothing except, you know, Bishop Grandin, who was uh, one of the, uh, well, he was a Catholic bishop in, the, in Alberta. And he said, um, I have to paraphrase, but what he said is we, we humiliate them about their ancestry so that they will feel deep, nothing but deep shame whenever, and they will veer away from their, from their indigeneity, basically. That's what he said. But you just Google Bishop Brandon and you can get the whole verbatim quote. Um, but you know, when the genocide conventions were articulated after the Second World War, there are five definitions of genocide. And one of them is the removal of children from one group to the other. And I think we as Canadians have a terrible time imagining that we engaged in a process of genocide, in an exercise of genocide, but I also believe it's really true. Do you struggle with that at all in terms of your identities being both Canadian and Indigenous? Like, I know, I'm sure you're aware My of- identity is not Canadian. You don't, no, you don't have, okay. Sorry, <laughs> I was thinking in terms of like, all the people who didn't celebrate um, Canada Day this year, right? Because we're, you know, it just, 
not that the shame should be new because of finding all of those graves so recently, but because it had come to the forefront at that time, a lot of people were struggling with having any sort of, um, you know, uh, affection oh, for their national identity. Yeah, celebrating Canada. And, yeah. you know, the, the other, I'm just going to step back a little bit. The other reason that I, that I was very frustrated with the fact that it's a new discovery was that, you know, Indigenous people have been saying this forever, that mm. kids died at the school, either through illness or malfeasance. And it wasn't until we came up with skeletons, right, that Canada would accept that, yes, in fact, this had happened. And that was another of my, my real frustrations. But I, you know, I take some comfort, I guess, in Canadians saying, oh, I, I'm not gonna celebrate in light of this. And I think, I think that's part of an awakening, of a very necessary awakening. Um, and that without that awakening, there can't be reconciliation. There just can't be. You know, mm -hmm. we can't just say, oh yeah, sorry. Okay, let's carry on. I mean, it just, you know, I mean, and nobody would think about, you know, like, whoever would say to, you know, a member of the Jewish community, why can't you just get over it, you know, and yes, it was 6 million people, but, you know, this genocide went on for 130 years in Canada, mm -hmm. and there's, there's a wonderful book, um, it's called American Holocaust, and the, the it's 1995 David Stannard, and, um, and what he's done is looked at all the statistics and looked and just done a, a real uh, extrapolation of the number of Indigenous people that actually died as a result of colonialism. And it's in the millions, right? We, there was tons of us here. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, so yeah. So I don't, I don't have any trouble um, conceptualizing what happened to us as genocide, not at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's possible for those of us that are trying to be aware and empathetic of what actually happened to ever come back around to any sort of national pride? Well, I think so. I think that we have, uh, come here, buddy. I think we have lots of things. You know, I, I don't think I would live in any other country except maybe Scotland or New Zealand. Um, you know, I think there's lots of things that are really good about Canada, but you can't, um, you know, it doesn't, just because there are those things, it doesn't even the scales, mm -hmm. right, in terms of what happened to us. And, you know, and there has to be, you know, and, and you hear people ranting on about the rule of law, and I'm pulling my hair out with frustration when I think about it, but, you know, like with the Wet'suwet'en in Northern British Columbia that were protesting the pipeline on their traditional territories, and all the people ranting about, oh, you know, this is the destruction of the rule of law and blah, 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 blah. And then you look at the Mi'kmaq fishers, okay, in uh, Nova Scotia, where the Supreme Court of Canada has said that their treaty does provide them with a right to a commercial fishery, but you've got white fishers that are out there, you know, ramming their boats, burning down their, their uh, stock houses, um, threatening murder and mayhem and the RCMP are standing back saying you know nobody there is saying what about the rule of law the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled on this and and ruled in favor of those fishermen so 
where is the chorus about the rule of law in that circumstance? It's not there because it's not convenient to the non-Indigenous people. Um, you know, and <laughs> yeah. So um, what was the question again? I sort of went a roundabout way. <laughs> That's okay. It was uh, just sort of the, you know, the struggle with trying to be proud of being Canadian when being Canadian right now doesn't feel great. Well, you know, I, I think it's okay to still feel proud of being a Canadian, but just don't use that pride to erase the reality of a really ugly history, a really ugly aspect of our history or this history as a country. And the RCMP, which, you know, are the, the grandchild of the Northwest Mounted Police, which was a paramilitary force that was formulated to clear the plains, right? That's another really good book. It's called Clearing the Plains by James Daszak. Um, you know, and they still celebrate, oh my God. There was, uh, I think it was in late spring. Oh, it would have been late, um, early spring, actually. It would have been in April. Um, after the, uh, where they were, they were, they were honoring two Northwest Mounted Police officers that died in the skirmishes that followed the Frog Lake massacre. I don't call it that, I call it an incident. Um, and they still, you know, <laughs> they're still honoring them for, you know, the work that they did as a paramilitary force killing Indians, right? And, you know, and that's what systemic racism is, right? It's when, it's when that history is still honored as opposed to being recognized for what it was. So, yeah and the RCMP, standing by in Nova Scotia when all that mayhem was going on, saying it's not a police matter. Mm -hmm. It's not a police matter. They're burning down, you know, arson, assault, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, well, attempted murder, not a police matter somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you see as our like way forward as a society to start sort of fixing problems that we've caused and to move forward into a better place? Well, I think that people have a, a, a awkward sense of what reconciliation really is. And, um, and for that, I spell it with a W. <laughs> um, but I look at reconciliation um, from a bookkeeping sense, in the sense of, you know, when you get your bank statement and you have to reconcile it with your bank account and you're creating a balance. And that's what has to happen. The scales have to be balanced again. And what that means is that there has to be adequate resources that, that Aboriginal title, which is a legal term um, that is protected by the constitution has to be recognized and resources, sufficient resources and I'm talking about natural resources, not just financial resources, um, need to be recognized as belonging to indigenous people so that we actually have a chance at self-sufficiency. We are the most poverty stricken people in the country um, because we have nothing. When reserves were set up through treaty and then by example, after for places that don't have a treaty, like BC has a couple of treaties, but that's all. They weren't intended that people would only live on the reserves. That was meant to be basically home base. And the language of the treaty say, of the treaties say 
that the mode of life will be protected. The mode of life, our way of life, our way of living, our way of being would be protected and respected. Not so much. Now people are challenging. I mean, this notion of crown land is absurd. That's ours. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, it has to be, um, that has to be recognized. Otherwise, I mean, how could, well, and, and breaches of treaty. I mean, you think about the Treaty of Versailles after the war. Would anybody think of just walking away from their treaty obligations in that treaty? No, of course not. But because of the, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald instructed Indian agents to starve. Well, first of all, you may know that the town or the city of Regina used to be uh, known as Pile of Bones. That was the name. And it was, it was the bones of buffalo and bison. And people were, were instructed to, to decimate the buffalo and bison herds because they were food, clothing, and shelter to us, to the prairie people anyway, okay? And so, so we were starving because food, clothing, and shelter had been taken away in that respect. And Sir John A. Macdonald instructed Indian agents to starve, to not, to not hand out rations um, until people were prepared to accept terms of treaty that weren't necessarily beneficial to them. Um, but their you know, treaty interpretation in the courts have actually been quite beneficial to us in many ways. Um, but so, you know, so I think people have to actually go back and honor those treaties, you know, and, and extrapolate that through to the provinces that don't have treaties so much like BC, um, just the way they, you know, like um, Treaty 6, which was negotiated by my great, great uncle. <laughs> um, it was the first treaty uh, that had the uh, schoolhouse provision. And it, it said that, that for every community, they would have a schoolhouse to help educate kids so that they could participate in the, um, um, you know, in the, in the large, well, the other society. And, um, and, and that right to education, that's where the right to um, subsidized education came from, was from that treaty provision. And even though there's no treaties in British Columbia, Indigenous people in British Columbia have access, do have that right as well. And so if they can extrapolate it that way, they can extrapolate it other ways as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you become self-sustaining if you have no access to resources, if you have no access to water, for God's sake? Um, yeah. Linda, you have more questions. I know you do. She's waiting so patiently, isn't she? <laughs> uh, well, well, I do have, I, you can just tell that I'm, I am a big talker, but you know, I'm enjoying listening to you. And I, I think, I, I think that, I mean, the biggest thing that we lost was you know, if we had only just respected, let alone incorporated the indigenous culture into our into our life, you know, the life that what you know formed Canada, mm -hmm. what a wonderful country we would be. And and I, I do, you know, I remember uh, talking to people, I know I do know people, for instance, I uh, you know, I have heard people say, for instance, they were from Nova Scotia 
And if it was not for the Mi'kmaq, their their ancestors wouldn't have survived because they, they they showed them how to survive the first Canadian winter, yeah. and um, and and how to to grow food and and harvest the you know the animals and all of those things that they didn't know how to do it. So there is there is a there are people that know that, yeah. and yet we have. A government governments generally that we have um, they, they have brainwashed us to think there's a scarcity so if we give something to this group however worthy that is there won't be enough for everybody and so everybody seems to be scrambling for I know I, I feel the same way I, you know I worked I worked with my whole life has been working with um you know, with people who are marginalized. And I, and it's just this idea, you hear so many people that they think, well, we can't, we can't do that. We don't have enough money. We don't to do that. If we do that, you know, everybody's going to suffer. And I think that, um, of course, that is just wrong. And that governments have just convinced us that they can't do the right thing. It would be too expensive. It would be, you know, impossible to make all of the wrongs right and I well, think we well, go ahead no no go ahead finish what you're saying that's okay well that's it I just think that there's just too many people think even if they wanted to do the right thing they they're they're worried that we can't do it and because then it's going to affect them and there is an that's underlying it. yes that, yeah. that's exactly it is that people um their commitment to reconciliation is only as far as it doesn't affect them and, and they don't acknowledge that, that they have been living off our backs since they first stepped onto yes. this continent. And that, you know, that, uh, and it isn't about giving us something, it's about acknowledging our rights to certain things and rights that they agreed to in the terms of those treaties. You know, they agreed to those things. And, uh, but, you know, we'll see. Do you have any faith in the uh, in any of the where you know we're coming up to a federal election? Um, do you have any faith that that there will be you know some of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation uh, the calls will, to action calls to action? Will any of them? Have, do you have any faith that they they will ever become you know actually happen? Well, you know, the calls to action were published in 2015, and so far six of them have been addressed. And each of those six are one-offs, you know, like funding the arts. Okay, so they increased the arts, or the budget of the Canada Council, um, you know, to specifically support Indigenous artists, those kinds of things. Um, things that don't involve systemic change um, are the things that they've been able to achieve. And I think without that, change to the mindset that we're talking about. Um, no, I, I don't have a lot of faith in that because I think really people are just, you know, afraid that it's going to affect their bottom line, right? And, and it could well and should well, you know, it should well. Why is it okay that we are the poorest people in this land, our own land, that we're, you know, essentially beggars in our own land? Why is that okay? It's not. And, uh, you know, and until people are, are willing to embrace that, 
that it's not okay. I don't think anything meaningful is going to happen. And so, you know, but I've also, you know, been alive long enough um, and involved in Indigenous politics long enough um, to see that there has been change. You know, I mean, you would never have seen a land acknowledgement, although I hate them because they kind of come across sometimes as, <laughs> bless me, Father Fry, I've seen, blah, 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 <laughs> right, you know, but, you know, and I mean, there are some very meaningful, I've heard some people give some very meaningful land acknowledgements, but, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that would have never happened. It just never would have happened. And so, you know, and things like the entrenchment of our rights in the constitution, even if it's not lived up to, it's there. And, you know, but again, it's largely through our advocacy, through our struggle to see those things happen. Um, but um, yeah, you know, until that mindset changes and, you know, and, you know, when we think about, when we go back a little bit to what you were saying about um, if only they had just embraced the relationship with Indigenous people, that's the nature of colonialism. Colonialism is never about, okay, what can we do together, right? You know, colonialism is about imposing uh, brute force against peoples, usually peoples of color, um, in order to be able to capitalize on the resources. That's what it's all about. I mean, you think about the British in uh, South America in the rubber plantations where they would chop people's hands off if they didn't come up with a, or chop their child's hand off if they didn't pick enough rubber. You know, I mean, this has been India, um, Canada. <laughs> you know, I mean, you think about it and it's just, uh, yeah, that's the nature of colonialism and imperialism. And, um, you know, and until we can abandon a colonial mindset and imagine, uh, you know, a more collective, cooperative mindset, I, I don't think that there will really be, you know, sort of substantive change, but just keep struggling along. I know that there's 90, I think 97 calls to action. It, it, it's a long list, but <clears throat> is there one that, you know, I, I have been, my own little thing is pressuring my uh, representative <clears throat> with regards to fresh and clean water available. So every time I get an opportunity, I say that's a priority for me and you promise that you better get working on it. But yeah. is there something else that, you know, that, uh, that you would suggest that, I know it's huge, I'm asking you a huge question, but something. All of them. <laughs> All of them, yes, yeah. And there, there yeah. were ninety. There were ninety-six. There were ninety-six yeah. calls to action. But you know, the ones that really um, that I think are so important are the ones that deal with systemic racism. You know, the um, you know the wholesale apprehension of Indigenous children for no apparent reason. I have a friend. She had a child in uh, Manitoba in a hospital. Indigenous woman. She's a PhD. She teaches at the university. And um, there's a thing that was incorporated in many of the provinces, but certainly Manitoba. And it was a birth alert where the hospital, anytime an indigenous woman had a child, the hospital would phone, you know, child protective services, right? And, uh, um, and so they came and grilled her about her suitability as a mother. And um, yeah, she sued them. And one. <laughs> and now Manitoba has ended 
that whole thing. But it's 2021, for God's sake. Yeah. And this year, they finally ended that whole nonsense of, of birth alerts, right? Oh, my God, that's way too long. That's way too long. <laughs> it's just I think, especially as a younger person yeah. it's so so easy for things to seem like distant past right and as I'm getting older and I'm increasingly sort of like wait a minute that wasn't that long ago like the you know certain laws that didn't end until x date and like great I was in middle school by then I was listening to songs that were blah, 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 and they're where still were around where were you in 1996 were you born I was two years old Okay, that's when the last residential school closed. See, that's not okay. That's it. Just it's mind-boggling, and I think that especially for younger generation, it's just in our head. There's this perception that yeah, that's history though, and it's it's like, like ancient history almost. History. Yeah, long ago history. Exactly. That's, that's this myth that's been perpetrated that, and that's where why can't they just get over it? Because there's this sense that it was so so long ago that it's not, you know. Right? If my mother had not married an Indigenous man and lost, you know, her status that way, I would have gone to residential school, which I think was a big part of her thinking in terms of who she chose to marry. I think she chose to marry a non-Indigenous person to protect her children, you know, so. It's insane that that even, ha even has had to be a thought in her head. It is. is. That you would have to marry outside of your community to protect your children. It's just... It's so frustrating. I don't know how, no, what I don't understand how Indigenous people aren't just like raging all the time. We <laughs> are. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody was burning everything down all the time because it's just, I have, I have no stake in the fight realistically and it infuriates me. So I don't. You do have a stake in it and uh, somebody else has all the guns. That's why. That's why. That's. I, I and when we do stand up, people start yapping about the rule of law. So, you know, I mean, there's this sort of entrenched resistance to any resistance. And um, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Do you think you see any generational differences? Like, do you think that it seems is like, is my generation doing any better at trying to understand what's going on and being appropriately angry about it? I think so, you know, and that's, that's what I was saying a few minutes ago is that I'm old enough now that I, you know, I've seen, I've seen um, advances that just simply wouldn't have happened, you know, mm -hmm. in the 70s and, you know, even into the early 80s, things that you just wouldn't see, um, you know, like for another thing is uh, um, designated child protection agencies where the Ministry of Social Services will designate their authority about children that are in care to an indigenous um, child protection authority. Those kind that that would have just never happened. It just never would have happened. Um, so, you know, but it, I think what, you know, the crux of the issue is, you know, people being able to, able to get over what you were talking about, Linda, in terms of that sense of scarcity that, you know, you know we, we support indigenous people as long as it doesn't affect our bottom line, that whole thing. Um, people need to understand that their, um, you know, that their their relative wealth compared to Indigenous people is because of Indigenous people, 
and and that there is something owed to us and though and i mean i that's that's difficult language because people you know oh, we don't owe you anything well yeah you do so how about royalties on every acre of this land since people got here how about that that might help oh <laughs> uh, yeah yeah well michelle i don't know if it i know that my grandchildren are you know the day after the Kamloops graves were um, were found, that the school actually addressed it and spoke with the children. And there is a local author that wrote about her experience at residential schools. And they re they had read the book before and they reread it. So it's a small thing, yeah. uh, but I do think the educators are yeah. trying to do um, to do something. And, you know, my grandchildren are 11 and 13. So they're, you know, the, the generation younger than Sarah. And so I, I do, I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that our kids will, as Sarah is totally outraged by this, uh, you know, that my, my grandkids will then actually go from not being just only outraged, but also doing something. Because I think there have been people along the line, like Dr. Bryce. I'm I'm no Dr. Bryce, but I am one person who has always tried to, you know, respectfully disagree with some of the myths, you know, about about the Indigenous people. And I think so. I think there is a, the, you know, it's it's a small thing, but I do think it is getting better. If that's any consolation. And your book, I've recommended your book to so many people, so to understand that yeah. intergenerational um, trauma. Um, yeah. There's also another book that we read was in the Evergreen book last year, which was A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. Oh, Alicia um, Elliott, that's yes. an excellent book. That's another book I think that describes, it's more current, you know, she's a young yeah. woman, you know, yeah. and I think, so there's, I do think there's a, so many good books that are now being written and uh, that, you know, if you can't describe it, because I'm not the best person to describe things, by, but by reading the book, people can can possibly understand and I, it. I don't, think, I don't think it's a small thing, you know, that these books are coming into the school system. I think it's a huge thing um, because it never would have happened before, you know, and I mean, it was women like Maria Campbell, Indigenous women that, you know, started breaking into the, into the publishing world, into the writing world, and, you know, sort of broke trail for you know people such as myself and others um, but I think that that the indigenous writers in this country are making a massive contribution yeah. you know to creating a deeper understanding to being bridges you know to understanding so yeah I agree thank yeah. you so much for your time I know that you know you, you probably uh, you sound like you're so busy and I can't wait to read your next book so I want to be I want to help <laughs> so um I wanted before, I know Sarah probably will want to wrap things up, but I just before I wanted to thank you for your time. I've, I've this, this is the third interview of you that I've participated in. Well, the other ones you couldn't participate in, you were just listening, but I really am honored to be able to, uh, to be able to talk to you and I wish you the best and I'll be following, following you and your career, which I know will be more successful as it goes on. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I, I mean, I, I'm busy, but I appreciate the opportunities to, you know, be able to, I mean, I've known a lot of stuff, right? This has been my whole life. And, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, I appreciate the opportunity to help increase awareness. So, yeah. Well, I will let you go, but I do have one question I have to ask as a librarian is what's a book you've read recently that we should all be reading? What have we missed? I haven't been reading much, quite frankly, because <laughs> I've been doing this. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, David Robertson curated this great long list of really excellent books to read about residential school and, and other, other such subjects. And you can find that really easily online. And um, um, Katharina Vermet <clears throat> has a book coming out. Uh, hang on. I got an arc. <laughs> I got an advance. Ooh, lucky you. Yeah. Um, it's coming out on the 28th of September. And I've read it and it's beautiful and I would highly recommend it. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. It was an honor to be able to pick your brain a little bit and rage about the situation a little together and hopefully in a productive way. Hopefully, if, you know, as this, we turn this into a podcast as well and more people will listen to it and, you know, maybe we get through to even more people. We can keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. All well, right. thank you. We really appreciated thank your book you. and your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, you both have a great evening. You too. Maybe Bye. we'll talk again someday. You never know. I'd love Bye. to. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this most recent episode of our Evergreen Awards author chat series with Michelle Good, author of Five Little Indians. We hope you've enjoyed this. And if you would like to hear more, we encourage you to listen to one of the previous authors that we've spoken to. We encourage you to follow the Calendar Public Library's podcast channel as we will be interviewing further authors, artists, and a variety of other people in the future. Be sure to follow us on social media for any exciting updates. And thank you again for joining us. Don't forget to vote for the Evergreen Awards with your local library to help choose the winner of this year's Evergreen Awards. Thank you for listening.